0: Well, good morning, Calvary. My name is Jason. I get to serve here at Calvary as one of our student pastors. And we've been in this series called For Everyone. And before we start, I want to talk to you a little bit about Hussein Bolt. Has anyone heard of Hussein Bolt? Maybe the fastest guy alive, fastest guy ever, Jamaican, sprinter, Olympian, gold medalist. And recently, he's retired from his competitive running days and is seeking to play professional soccer, okay, which uh, is an interesting choice. So he, he said, I want to play for Manchester United. And if you don't know anything about soccer, Manchester United is kind of like the New York Yankees of soccer. They spend a lot of money. They're traditionally everyone's favorite team. And he's like, I want to play for Manchester United. Lofty goal for not a soccer player to want to play for the most famous soccer team in the world. And not shockingly, he wasn't good enough to play for them. So he ends up signing for this team in Australia, and uh, he was not good. He just was not very good. He really struggled. And one of the coaches on his team even said, his touch is like a trampoline which if you don't know anything about soccer, basically that's like saying a wide receiver in football has brick hands. Basically saying every time the ball touches his foot, it just flies away from him. And he, he's really struggling, he's not really playing much anymore. And I've been thinking about him playing for that team and I wonder what the other guys on the team kind of feel like. Like, I've given my life to soccer, I've, I've trained every day, I've eaten right, I've done all my fitness, I've, I've played this for 20 years, 30 years, and in comes this not soccer player who is fast, like I'll give him that. But all of a sudden, like, he's ahead of me? Like, this doesn't seem very fair. And I wonder how many of us have felt that way, uh, where, where we've worked so hard for something in our lives. We've, we've tried so hard. We've put in the time. We've put in the, the blood, sweat, and tears. We've put in the money. And, and someone new comes in or something new comes in, and somehow they're ahead of us. Right? For some of us, maybe that has happened in the same realm of sports, where you've, you've put your life, your time, your effort, your energy, you've w- waken up early in the morning, you sacrificed friends and diet and all these things, and, it, and you're at tryouts, and here comes this, this new kid, this new guy, this new girl in the tryouts who's like, yeah, I don't know, I've never really played basketball before, but it seemed fun. And all of a sudden, they're starting on the team, and you're like, you've got to be kidding. Like, I've given my whole life to this, and here comes this new person ahead of me. Maybe it's happened to us at work, where we, we've put in 5, 10, 15, 20 years at the same place, and in comes this new person who's less experienced than us. Maybe they're younger than us, and, and maybe they get a promotion that we felt like we deserved, and that just doesn't feel fair, right? We, we're the ones that have put in the time and effort. Maybe it's happened in our relationships where we've had a group of friends that have done everything together, and and all of a sudden, in comes a new, new guy or new girl to school, and and they disrupt the friend circle. And all of a sudden, the friends that I've been pouring into, the friends that I've been loving, the friends that I've been investing in, all of a sudden want to spend their time with, with this person. And it feels like, man, all the time, all the effort, all the energy I've done like, was for nothing, it feels like. And I think all of us, we weigh this tension in our lives of inclusivity and exclusivity. And I think we, we want to be for other people. We want to be supportive of other people, but we also want what we feel like we've earned, we want what we feel like we've, we deserve. And I think that framework is a really good place for us to start as we enter into our topic for this morning. We've been in the book of Romans. The book of Romans is written by this guy named Paul. And Paul, before he was named Paul, was named Saul. And he was not a great guy. He was a persecutor of Christians. And and God gets a hold of Paul's life in a pretty radical way and and does a 180 in in Paul's life and says, Paul, no longer are you going to persecute my people. I'm going to send you to the nations and you're going to be my biggest mouthpiece to the entire world about who I am. And so much of what we have in the New Testament, the second section of the Bible, is written by this guy named Paul. And in the book of Romans, Paul is writing to a group of people in Rome. And so we've just been in the front half of the book of Romans over the last few weeks. And so I just want us to recap a little bit where we've been so we kind of know where we're going today. The first three chapters of the book of Romans, Paul is describing a problem. And that problem is that we are all in the same boat. We, have, we all have sin in our lives. We all deserve death. We all deserve punishment. But the good news is there is a solution, chapters 3 and 4. That solution comes in the person of Jesus. Jesus came. He lived. He died. He rose from the dead so that we might experience new life in Jesus, And so now chapters 5 through 8, we see the results. What, is the, what are the results of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and how does that matter in our lives? And that's where we're going to be this morning in the beginning of chapter 7. We're going to talk about some of the results that Jesus has in our lives if we choose to follow him. And we're going to be reading from chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. One through six. He says, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code." And I think that there are three kind of words, three themes that we see throughout these just short six verses that I think are helpful for us to understand if we're going to understand what Paul is trying to communicate in these six verses. And that first word is law. The word law shows up a lot in these six verses. So what is the law? It's important for us to understand what the law is that Paul is referring to if we're going to understand the point that Paul is trying to make. And the the law that Paul is referring to is the law that God gave to Moses early on in the Old Testament. And so just so I'm going to give us a brief synopsis of what, where we are, how we got there. For those of us who grew up in church, this might be a refresher. For those of us who didn't, this will be quick. A quick review of, of how they got this law. So the book of, the beginning of the Bible, the first book of the Bible is called Genesis. And early on in the book of Genesis, God has a relationship with this guy named Abraham. And God makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a promise with Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless your name. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I'm going to bring you into this awesome land. And so he blesses this guy. Abraham makes a covenant with him. But not shortly after that, the descendants of Abraham are now referred to as the people of Israel, the people of God. Throughout the whole Old Testament, find themselves in slavery, and that doesn't feel like a great fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham. You chose, you said you were going to bless me, you were going to you going to bring my bring bring me into a land, you were going to make my descendants numerous, and they find themselves in slavery for four hundred years. But in Genesis it says God remembers his covenant with Abraham. And so he sends this guy Moses into Egypt to rescue the people of Israel from slavery and bring them out. And that's where we find ourselves in the book of Exodus chapter 19. God has just sent Moses into Egypt to rescue the people from slavery. And here's what we read in Exodus 19. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession." Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. <clears throat> and Moses told the Lord what the people had said. So these nine verses are the preamble to the Ten Commandments. This is what's happening right before God giving the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. So God is giving the people of Israel a law. He's giving them law and, and there's four reasons why. His, his four reasons as to why he's giving the law to the pe- people of Israel. Four reasons why he's establishing a covenant with Moses. And the first reason was to form a nation. When God made a covenant with Abraham, he was forming a family. When God's giving a covenant to, to Moses, he's forming that family into a nation. The nation of Israel. So God's forming a nation. The second reason he's giving the law to Israel was to humble them. God wanted Israel's response to his redeeming them to be humble obedience. God rescued them from slavery. He redeemed them, and he wanted their response to that redemption to be a response of humble obedience. The third reason God gave Israel the law was to reveal more of himself to Israel. If we read the Old Testament, we see a progression of revelation throughout the whole Old Testament. God chooses to reveal more and more of himself as time goes on. And so this is God revealing just a little bit more of himself to Israel than he had in the past. And the fourth reason that God gave the law to Israel was to give Israel a fuller picture of holiness to give Israel a fuller picture, fuller picture of God's holiness, but to also give Israel a fuller picture of the holiness that God was requiring, expecting, and demanding from them. And it was conditional. We read that God says, if you obey, if you obey this law, you will be my treasured possession. The, the law, the, their, their redemption, their salvation wasn't based on, On their obedience. God saved Israel from Egypt before he ever asked for their obedience. God saved uh, Israel from Egypt before he ever gave them the law. But the conditions were to obey in order to enjoy all that God had in store for them. And there was consequence and there was punishment if they disobeyed. And the people of Israel had an interesting relationship with the law because on one hand, they loved the law. We read in many Psalms that they love the law. They delight in the law. The law is referred to as as, as sweet as honey. They loved it. But on the other hand, it was, it was binding in that it was impossible to keep. And it was impossible to deal with the sin in their lives. And some of the people that Paul is talking to in this book of Romans, chapter 7, are Jewish, which means they grew up as a part of this nation that God formed in Exodus 19. They grew up learning the law. They grew up listening to the law. They grew up memorizing the law. They grew up going to the synagogue. They grew up going to the temple. Their parents instilled this religion in them. That's how they grew uh, But they kept falling short. Every year, they would try to obey the law. They would, they would fall short. They would have to make sacrifice year after year to atone for, to forgive their sin. Next year, the same thing would happen. They would try to uphold the law. They would inevitably fail, have to make more sacrifice. This would happen year after year. But the group of people that Paul's talking to here aren't exclusively Jewish. There are some Gentiles in the audience as well, which just means not Jewish. Or Gentile just means they were not Jewish. And if they're not Jewish, it means they weren't a part of the nation that God formed in Exodus 19. They didn't grow up listening to the law. They didn't grow up hearing the law. They didn't grow up talking about the law with their families. They didn't grow up up memorizing the law. They didn't grow up going to to the synagogue, to the temple. That wasn't a part of their upbringing. But in in Romans 7.1, it says they knew the law. So Paul's talking to people who are familiar with it. So the, the Gentiles in the audience, they're familiar with the law that God is talking about. And the law wasn't meant to be a list of do's and don'ts. Do these things, don't do these things, and you'll be fine. The point of the law was perfection. The point of the law was perfection, which was impossible. And to make matters worse, not only was it impossible for the Jewish people to keep the law, the law itself made them aware of what sin was. Right, We read in verse 5, uh, Romans 7, 5, we read that their sinful passions were aroused by the law. We're going to talk a little bit more about this next week, so I don't want to go into too too much detail on it. But the law made the people aware of their sin. Here's the analogy. If you're driving down the street, and you're driving 50 miles an hour, and the speed limit is 40, but there's no speed limit sign, you don't know you're speeding. As soon as there's a speed limit sign that says 40, and you're driving 50, now you're aware that you're speeding, Right? The, the law makes us aware that we're doing something wrong. Same thing for Israel. So the law formed a nation. The law given to Moses formed a nation of Israel. The, the law was meant to humble the people. It was meant for the people to respond to God's saving them from slavery, to God's redeeming work in their life. It was a call to respond in humble obedience. The law gave them a fuller picture of who God was, and it painted a bigger picture of the holiness of God, and it gave the people a bigger and better picture of the holiness that God expected to them. But the, of, of them, but the law didn't adequately free people from their sin. If you were here last week, uh, Romans chapter 6 teaches us that we are slaves to sin, that the Jewish people, slaves to sin. So they had the law, but they were slaves to sin, which means that the law didn't adequately deal with the sin in their life. The law didn't free the people from their sin. And in that way, the Jews and the Gentiles, they're in the same boat. They both need someone or something to deal with. With their sin, So for the Jews to, to continue to be under the law, for the Jews to be continually binded by the law, to use the metaphor that Paul uses here, for the Jews to continue to be married to the law was ineffective. Just as it would have been ineffective to ask the Jews to fall under the law as well, because the law didn't adequately deal with the sins of the Jews, it was going to inadequately deal with the sins of the Gentiles. And so something had to happen. For the Jews to be released from the law, for the for the Jews to be released from their marriage to the law, a death had to occur. And Paul uses this marriage illustration. A wife is bound by law to her husband as long as her husband is alive. As soon as her husband dies, as soon as there's a death, she, the, the wife is free from that bondage of the law and she's free to marry someone else. The, Paul's point is the only thing that frees us from being bound to the law is death. And in verse 4, chapter 7, we read that we died to the law. The Jews died to the law through the death and body of Christ. Just like the the woman is released from her marriage through the death of her husband, you guys are released from your bondage to the law through the death of Jesus. And the Gentiles were free from having to fall under the bondage of the law through the death of Jesus. Jesus says in, in the book of Matthew, verse five, or chapter 5, verse 17, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus didn't come to do away with the law. He didn't come to do away with what God gave to Moses and to the people of Israel in Exodus 19. He came to fulfill the, the expectations of the law. All of the ways that the people of Israel fell short year after year after year, all of the ways that they disobeyed, all of the ways that they failed to uphold the standards of the law, Jesus didn't fall into that category. Jesus was the first person to ever fully live under the expectation of the law. He was the only person to fully obey what God had given to the people of Israel. And then he died on a cross as a sacrifice for our sin. Right, We said earlier the Jews every year would have to make sacrifice for their sin. They would have to slaughter an animal as a sacrifice for their sin. But the, the, the animal itself, the blood of the animal, did not save the people from their sin. The sacrifice that the Jewish people had to make throughout all of history up until the point of Jesus were a picture pointing to a future perfect sacrifice. And the thing that those were pointing towards was Jesus who fully satisfied the requirements of the law, who then died on a cross, were the Jews and were the Gentiles, which is us in this room, Gentiles, deserve to be on the cross. And so because of Jesus, like we read in Exodus 19, because Jesus fully satisfied the requirements of the law, just like we read in Exodus 19, because he fully obeyed God, we get to experience the blessing of being God's treasured possession. So in reality, you know, those of us in church, we like to say, we're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. We are. We're saved by the grace of God. We see God's grace in redeeming the people from slavery in Egypt. They didn't deserve that. We see the same in God's grace in our lives. But we are saved by works. We're saved by Jesus' works. And there is still punishment for disobeying the law like we see in Exodus 19. There is still punishment for our disobedience. But Jesus bore the punishment that we deserve on the cross. The punishment still exists and the punishment still deserve, is still deserved, but the punishment was already carried out on the cross. But just because Jesus fulfilled the law and died on the cross, and us dying to the law, doesn't mean the law has no purpose in our life at all. Just because Jesus is saying, or Paul is saying, we're no longer bound to the law, doesn't mean the law has no purpose in our lives. So why did the Jews die to the law, and why do us as Gentiles, why are we not Bound. What is the purpose of this unbinding? What is the purpose of, of Jesus freeing the Jews from this marriage to the law? Well, one of the reasons is so that they can be joined together with Jesus. But we see another reason at the end of verse 4. And, and the reason that Jesus came, fulfilled the law, died on the cross, bore the punishment that we deserve so that we can be joined together with Jesus is so that we might bear fruit for God. And here's what I hope we walk away with this morning. And that truth is this. Obedience doesn't affect our standing with God. Obedience reflects our standing with God. Obedience doesn't affect our standing with God. Obedience reflects our standing with God. Right? We said one of the purposes of God giving the law to Israel was for them to humbly obey as their response to his redeeming work in their lives. And that is exactly God's purpose for our lives as well. Like after the Israelites being saved from Egypt, God asked for their obedience. He asked for their obedience after he saved them. Their obedience didn't affect his saving them. Their obedience wasn't, be, wasn't the reason he saved them. But he was asking for obedience in response to what he had done. And we don't, we don't obey because we have to. We obey because God is calling us into a life of holiness. He's calling us to become more and more like him. If you've been here at all in this series, we've been we've been using this word justification. And if you're new, uh, justification is this fancy theological word that means being declared righteous. And so none of us are righteous, but Jesus lived a perfect life, died on the cross, took the penalty that we deserve. And so that he can now say on our behalf, they are not guilty because I bore the punishment for their sin. That's what justification is. But there's another word, another fancy theological word that goes hand in hand with justification. And that word is sanctification. Sanctification is the process of becoming more and more holy. It's the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. And you can't have one without the other. You can't have justification. You can't be in relationship with Jesus. You can't have Jesus declare you righteous and then have the product not be to become more and more like him. They are intertwined intimately. And we don't always, I think, understand this. I think uh, sometimes people use the grace of God as an excuse to live a sinful lifestyle. I think we talked a little bit about that last week. And we like to use this, this phrase. If you grew up in church, you've probably heard this phrase. I'm not under the law. Right? We're not under the law. We're under grace. We're under grace. We're not under the law. The sentence itself is not wrong. But I think sometimes our application and interpretation of that sentence is wrong. Just because God has saved us and we're not under the law doesn't mean we can willfully sin. Doesn't mean we can actively disobey. We're not bound to the law. We're bound to Jesus. And our response is humble obedience. Obedience isn't what saves us. Obedience in and of itself doesn't affect our standing with God, but obedience is what reflects who God is in our lives. And I think obedience might feel like an intimidating word. I think most of us hate the word obedience. If you're a teenager in this room, you definitely hate the word obedience. We don't, like to be, we don't like to be told obey. We don't like to be told what to do. We don't like for people to tell us to obey them. And on top of that, I think sometimes when it comes to the Bible, we don't know where to start, right? The Bible is long, okay? The Old Testament Probably the, the, the section of the Bible we tend to read the least—it's long. There's a lot of laws. There's a lot of dos and don'ts. There's a lot of there's a lot of lists of things that are in there. And so, how do if we need to obey, where do we know where to begin? How do I know what things I should be, should obey and what things shouldn't I obey? How do I know what things in the Bible were cultural? They were only for people that lived when the Bible was written, but they're no longer applicable today. Like, how do we know what's relevant and what's not? And Jesus gives us the answer to this question. In the book of Mark, chapter 12, uh, well, let's just read what happens. One of the teachers of the law, so the teachers of the law, what God gave Moses, expert of the law, teacher of the law, memorized the law, gave his life to the law. He approaches Jesus and he, and he says, of the commandments of the law, which law is the most important? Jesus, The most important one answer Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And Paul, the guy who's writing Romans in a different letter later on in the Bible that he's writing to a different church, summarizes it even further. He says this, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the summation of the law. That's how we can obey. That's how we can respond to the redeeming work of God in our lives by loving God, and loving people. And those two things can't be separated. Our love for God cannot be separated from our love for people. And I think sometimes we have a tendency to equate our love for God with other things. Sometimes we say, I love, I love God and I, can sh- I show my love for God and you can tell that I love God because I listen to Christian radio and I know all of the worship songs and I, and I stand in church, I hold my hands up high and I, I just love singing and I love God, you can tell. Or, or how about, the, I love God. You can't tell me I don't love God. I wake up early every morning, I read my Bible, I pray every day, I love God. You can You can see how I love God. But Jesus doesn't say, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and read your Bible. He doesn't say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength and pray every day. He doesn't say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and sing all of the worship songs. Those are all amazing, important things. I hope those are things we're all doing. The takeaway is not, I hope you don't leave here saying, Jason said, don't read my Bible, don't pray, don't sing worship songs. Okay, I have to give that disclaimer because sometimes when you, when you teach teenagers, that's the takeaway. You know, you go home, Jesus said I shouldn't pray and then I get a phone call like, why are you teaching this? That's not the takeaway. Those are all important things but, but I've heard it described this way. Imagine, you know, some of you are parents, so parents or not parents, imagine this scenario. You tell your older older child, to help their younger sibling with their homework. And then later on, you follow up with that older child and say, hey, did you, how did it go? Did you help them with their homework? And your older, your older child says, I did not, but I memorized what you said. You said, help my younger sibling with his homework. But did you, did you do it? I did not, but I memorized it. But sometimes that's how we are with the Bible. We, we memorize it and we love what we learn and we love learning and we love growing, but we don't always put it in to practice. Right? Love is the central theme of the gospel. Knowledge is not. And I'm not saying knowledge is bad. I'm in grad school. I love learning. I love growing. I love learning more information. But if our knowledge, if our knowledge of what the Bible says is not leading us to greater love, it's pointless. If what we're doing behind closed doors in prayer, if what we're seeing in worship, if what, we're, if what we're reading in the Bible is not growing us to be greater lovers of people, it's a waste of our time. The entirety of the law summed up in one command. So if you're a Christian and you're sitting here and you want to know how you can obey, how you can respond to the redeeming work of God in your life, the answer is to love your neighbor as yourself. That seems simple. It seems too simple. But man, I think sometimes loving people is easier said than done. Me personally, I have a hard time loving people who are different than me. I have a hard time loving people when it costs me something. I played soccer in college, and every winter we would train at this local indoor facility. And uh, they would let us train there for free as long as we would run the scoreboard for their indoor leagues. And so our team would rotate, we'd, we'd have sign-ups, some of us would do the do different shifts throughout the week for running the scoreboard to let us train there. And every winter, some of the guys that would train with us were guys that wanted to try out. They weren't on the team, but they uh, wanted to tr- they wanted to get training in with the guys so that next year they could try out and be a walk-on. And, and sometimes it worked out, sometimes it didn't, but they would train with us, we'd give the coach some feedback. And as I was going into my senior year, I was voted to be a captain on the team, and we had one of the guys trying out with us, and he was okay, but I, he wasn't going to make the team. You could tell, he just wasn't going to make the team. And he was training, and so we had an open slot on our sign-up sheet to run the scoreboard for Super Bowl Sunday night. And it remained vacant, and Super Bowl Sunday was approaching, and people continued to not fill that spot. And me, as the good captain I should have been, I should have signed up for that slot. I didn't. I let this guy volunteer to sign up for that slot even though I knew he wasn't going to make the team. And I just want to tell you that was like 10 years ago. I think about that an irrational amount of times. It weighs on me that decision. If I had that guy's phone number, I'd call and apologize. It was a terrible way to love him in that moment. I didn't want to miss out on the Super Bowl. I don't want to miss out hanging out with my friends eating good food, watching football on a Sunday night. I don't want to miss out on that. So I let someone else take the fall who I knew wasn't going to reap the benefits of training. I knew he wasn't going to make the team because loving him in that moment was going to cost me something that was precious to me. And I think sometimes it's hard to love people. So how are we doing at loving people? How are we doing at loving those people at work who, who annoy us and ask us way too many questions before we've had our morning cup of coffee or who maybe got the promotion we thought we deserved? How are we loving our actual next door neighbors who, who make way too much noise, way too late at night, who don't cut their grass on time and make the rest of the neighborhood look bad? Students, how are we loving those students in school who, who nobody talks to and you know that having a conversation with them would risk your reputation so you choose to let them remain lonely? How are we doing, Calvary, at loving people who... Who live lifestyles or who make decisions that maybe we disagree with? How are we doing at welcoming people who are different than us into our community? Here's here's why I love these six verses. These six verses in Romans reinforce the idea that the gospel is for everyone Jews, Gentiles, no matter what your history is, no matter what your obedience to the law looks like, no matter what your upbringing was. Jesus died on the cross so that we can all have a fresh start. Jesus died on the cross so that we can all have a new way of living. He did what the law never could. He took away our sin. And I think sometimes as Christians, we struggle where people are coming from. We look at their past, and if people's stories aren't lining up with what our stories are, we struggle with that. And I wonder, some, I wonder sometimes what the Jews felt like when all of a sudden their way of life was inclusive to everybody. So you're telling me, I grew up going to church. I grew up obeying the Bible as best I could. I grew up memorizing the law. I grew up doing all of the right things or trying my best. I gave my life to these things. And you're telling me that it no longer matters and that we're letting everybody into our circle. You're saying my whole life was wasted. Not too dissimilar from maybe some some of the guys that Hussein Bolt plays soccer with. I've done everything that was right, and now this is for everyone. And I wonder if, if some of us have felt that, way, that same way too. And I've given my life to volunteering. I've given my life to raising my kids in the church. I've given my life to prayer. I've given my life to, to reading the Bible. I've given my life to, to, to inviting my friends to church. And in come these other people who don't have the same history as you, in come these other people whose lives may have been, been filled with addiction. In come these other people who, who, there's, who their lives may be, may be full of, of infidelity, broken marriages. In come these people who, who are coming from a history of destroyed relationships. And I think sometimes that bothers us. Because I think sometimes, I think sometimes we want the church to be for us. I think sometimes we want the church to be for us. And we're living in that tension of being inclusive and exclusive. But church, how easy is it sometimes for us to forget what our lives were like before we knew Jesus? how quickly we forget sometimes what our lives were like before God intervened. And if you're in this room and you're not a Christian yet, you're just checking out, I want you to know the gospel is for everyone. And that's what Romans teaches us. No matter what your history is, no matter what your life has been filled up with until this point, You don't have to behave any certain way. You don't have to obey any certain thing in order to enter into a relationship with Jesus. Your life doesn't have to be put together. Your life can be broken and messy. But once you enter into a relationship with Jesus, he loves you too much to let you stay there. And he's calling you and he's calling us, he's calling all of us into a lifetime of holiness where we seek to respond to his redeeming work in our lives by humbly obeying. And it won't happen tomorrow, but it'll happen moment by moment, day by day, from now until eternity. In Romans, we see a paradigm shift in who the people of God are. Up until this point, the people of God were the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel that God formed in Exodus 19. But now because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, anyone is welcome to be a part of the people of God. All of us in this room are in the same boat. We all desperately need Jesus. Jesus accomplished what the law never could have accomplished in our lives. And I pray, Calvary, that this week we respond to the love and grace that Jesus has shown in our lives. We respond to his redeeming work by humbly obeying, by loving our neighbor. God, thank you that you're calling us to something better, that you love us too much to let us stay where we are. Thank you that you are inclusive to all people, and that you've broken down barriers so that all of us can enter into a relationship with you, God. You are awesome. And it's your name we pray, amen.